to the philosophy of psychoanalysis. The lecture you are about to listen to was created by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This course has been made publicly available, but was recorded for a live student audience. Please enjoy. Lecture 34, The Crystallization of Discontent. Okay, I'll, I'll resume now. I just want to sort of remind you of the, the, uh, the deeper sort of organizing principle that I raised, which is the difference between coping where you explain away and change where you start to link things and connect them together. And I think one of the most remarkable um, examples of this is Roy Baumeister's notion of the crystallization of discontent. Basically what he suggests is that, you know how, um, I don't know if you did this as a, as a kid, we used to sort of put a whole lot of chemicals in a supersaturated solution and then we would get um, threads of, of sewing cotton and we would hang them in the solution. And so long as you let the liquid cool really slowly, and crystals would form, but they would drop out of the supersaturated solution and they would form onto the ends of this sewing thread. And they would have the form that was required, you know, by the chemical makeup of whatever it was you had in the solution. It's really fascinating stuff as a kid. So what's happening here is that these links or bonds are being made between unpleasant life events, unsatisfactory life events, negative features of your situation. And if you're trying to cope with it, you're going, yeah, exams are awful, but I've only got five more left. Um, yeah, I don't have much money, but I'll only have to suffer it for two years. Yes, my roommate's not great, but I'll be able to shift in a year and a half. Okay, in other words, coping means that you explain away all of those things. But can you imagine where you wake up and you go, I've got no money, I've got five exams, I've got a lousy roommate, and I'm not putting up with it anymore, right? That's crystallization of discontent. It's all come together for you in some way. And usually there's something called the focal incident that just makes it all come together. It might be that you suddenly have to write a paragraph in your personality lecture about your life right now. And as you were writing it down, you're thinking, negative, negative, negative. My life, it's just negative, you know. I can't go on like this, right? You've made the connections. You can't undo those connections once you've made them. Now, the focal incident of me getting you to write a paragraph about your life, that wasn't the straw that broke the camel's back. That's not such a terrible thing to ask. But it was the opportunity for the coming together of these things. So the focal incident doesn't produce the change. It allows the crystallization to occur which produces the change. So that's the short story, and I'll just talk you through it. I put this article up online. It's one of my favourites. People say Roy Baumeister was writing this in a bit of a rush, but I actually really enjoy it as an article. So prior to the crystallisation, sure, you might have had your complaints and your misgivings about a role or about a relationship or something that you do in life, but you tend to keep them separate. You know, you explain them away. But the crystallised Crystallization brings them together into a coherent body of complaints and misgivings. And it's not that the total number of negative features has changed, but with the crystallization having occurred, each negative feature reminds you of the other negative features. They kind of prime and cue each other in some way because of their associative connections. So the subjective impact of this can be utterly enormous. It might mean that you just go, that's it. I can't keep living my life in this way. I'm going to get a new partner or a new job or I'm going to get a new house or whatever. 
if those events remained unlinked or unschematized or actively coped with, they may seem unrelated to each other and you can stay put. But once the crystallization has occurred, you actually can't return to that former pattern. The facts haven't changed, but you draw very different conclusions than you did previously. So I find things like this quite fascinating. And one of my students years ago said, can't there be a crystallization of content? And I'm not sure. I'm not sure because we don't really explain away sources of happiness. But we do explain away sources of unhappiness to try and sort of keep them out of mind in a way. So I'm not sure whether you can have crystallization of content. I'm interested to hear what you think. And the focal incident might just be the dramatization of your source of dissatisfaction rather than actually being the principal source of your dissatisfaction. And there's all sorts of lovely evidence of this, of first-person accounts of life change, or marital breakup, and um, when I'm, in fact, no, my second PhD student ever, Margot Oren, wrote a really beautiful PhD called Moments of Impact. And that's what she looked at was a sort of like a, if you like, a positive crystallization, which moved the person up an ego developmental level. They suddenly resolved what had been conflictual before in their lives and lived differently as a result of that. You can also get radical events that make you more like yourself in a sense. In other words, you might have had certain dispositions as part of your personality, but then this novel or stressful or unexpected event comes along and it makes you even more like yourself. Okay, You probably know if you're the sort of person that talks if everybody's silent and awkward, right? That's a real dangerous one to get into because everyone else just gets more silent and more awkward and you can't stop. Right? So that can actually have that sort of, I'm now completely wound up and I need a small lie down and a nap because I'm exhausted kind of effect. Yeah. To regression? Yes. It, mm, I don't know if it's regression so much as really revealing a dominant response tendency within your personality, but it might produce regression in a way. Because, yeah, let me think about that one. I can't answer that. Too good a question. Kathleen Moffat used the example of girls who got their periods really early. And um, if you were high in neuroticism prior to getting your period, if you got your period at eight or nine before anybody else even knew it was on the cards that this was going to happen to anybody, you could actually end up being quite neurotic, quite nervy as a result of it. And but young girls who didn't have any behaviour problems prior to early menarche didn't show any after. In other words, it's one of those things that selectively impacts. It's like a diathesis stress model. If you're already neurotic, and ah, God, you get this, you're going to be more neurotic. If you weren't neurotic and you got this, eh, who cares? You handle it. Okay. And um, Block and Robbins looked at self-esteem in people between the ages of 14 and 23. This is actually quite hard to explain, and I will inevitably get myself in a bit of a tangle, but here goes. Okay. So, you got changes in self-esteem, which were then correlated with the Q-sort ratings of personality made by a person who interviewed them at 14. Do you remember what a Q-sort is? Do you remember it at all? You remember when I was talking about um, scaffolding clinical insight and I was talking about this Schedler Western assessment procedure and they used a Q-sort? 
And basically, it's a series of experience near statements that are either written on cards, that's the way they used to be, and you've got to put them in piles, either extremely like this person, extremely unlike this person, or sort of like this person. And it's a judgment you make rating another person. The reason I like it is because it doesn't just rely on self-report. Okay, because I may be the most callous psychopath, and I go, no, I feel deeply for all my little victims, you know. <laughs> okay, and somebody observing me, like, no, completely callous. They have no trouble, you know, rating my personality. But I might be sort of more wily in my self-report. So you've got self-esteem that I've rated at 14 and at 23, but someone has rated me on two sort at 14. Okay. What they then looked at was the way that what happened to those self-esteem ratings. They found that in men who'd got neurotic tendencies at age 14, according to the Q sort, their self-esteem rating declined as they aged. Okay? So neuroticism was one of the things that predicted self-esteem decline in men. But what predicted self-esteem decline in women was a far broader array of attributes, namely agreeableness, extroversion, and neuroticism. So in other words, for women, it's not just that intrapsychic relationship, which is what neuroticism is. Oh, gee, I've got negative affective states and I can't terminate them. That's neuroticism. But for women, their self-esteem was far more socially mediated. It matters how agreeable I am. It matters how extroverted I am, how I can feel about myself between 14 and 23. And so the, for the women who were rated by Q-sort at age 14 as being introverted, neurotic, and disagreeable, they had quite low self-esteem by age 24. In other words, it's saying what matters about your personality differs depending on your gender. And what's going to impact your self-esteem matters depending on your gender, differs depending on your gender. Okay, this is the bit where you really all can just go to sleep, right? I just will apologize broadly, completely, utterly. This next bit's totally deadly and you don't have to listen and I promise I won't ask you questions on it in the exam, but something in me means I've got to tell you about it anyway. Okay, because I think it does matter in psychology. Okay, so if I do a one-shot measure, right, I get you to do a maths problem right now, and I want to work out whether men are better at maths than women based on that one-shot measure. The difficulty with a one-shot snapshot is there could be variability within you. You might have got wildly drunk last night, right? You might really have just taken an antihistamine and be on the verge of falling asleep right now. No way you're going to do maths problems. You might not be yourself today. You might just be feeling a bit peaky, right? In other words, the individual variability. And I can't disentangle that from variability between people because it's only a one-shot measure. Okay, so that's a serious problem, depending on what you're studying. Okay, would you believe it that women when their estrogen levels are high, are better at verbal tasks, and they're better at spatial tasks when their estrogen levels are low. So if I just do a one-shot measure, I'm stuck with whatever estrogen level you've got right now, and it might either advantage you or disadvantage you relative to the task, and I won't know that. 
because I'm just taking a one-shot measure. And so, in other words, cycle-related variability due to what your estrogen level was doing um, was masking stable differences within you um, in regards to your spatial ability and your verbal ability. And so a one-shot cross-sectional study means those things are hopelessly tangled for me and there's nothing I can do to disentangle them. Okay. Boring fact number two. <laughs> this I sort of like this thing, but it is utterly boring. Right. The problem is, whenever we say what a person's personality trait is like, we compare them to some norm. Okay? So if I'm saying you're high on conscientiousness, I'm saying you're high on conscientiousness relative to other Australians of your gender and your age. Okay, and I always compare you to those norms if I'm being smart. The problem is, everybody might get more conscientious as they age. And so it looks like you're staying stable because you're only still one standard deviation above the mean in conscientiousness. But actually, you're getting more conscientious. And I'm failing to see that because I'm comparing you to age-relative cohort norms. Okay, so I miss the increase in conscientiousness. That's not such a great example, but that'll do. It gets the idea. Because we're all flying in this formation in space, and if we keep comparing ourselves to other people that are at the same age and stage, you might not pick up on very real change that's there. Methodological issues, boring fact number three. Test, retest reliability. Okay. The problem is that you just look at the total score usually, but you can get the total score and have answered totally different test items. Okay, so I might say yes to paranoid ideation in one, and then yes to night terrors in the other, and my neuroticism level is exactly the same, so the test-retest reliability is high. But I've changed, and the test has missed it. Okay, so that's boring fact number three. The problem is, too, is that sometimes they correct for measurement error when they're doing test, retest reliability. And Costa and McRae used to do this so much that we were all a wee bit suspicious of their use of stats at certain times because it, they almost got correlation coefficients that were greater than one. I actually just had an article that I had to review very recently, and the person had corrected their correlation coefficient and one of their critics had come in and shown um, how nonsensical it was because it turned out that if you um, really looked at the true correlation coefficient, it looked like it was something like 232, sort of like way in advance of one because of the kind of correction that they had done. So it is a, a serious but boring concern. Right, moving right along. <laughs> if you thought that was boring, this is even worse. Like this is probably the worst bit. No, no, there's one more that's to come, which is even worse, okay. But this is pretty bad, okay. Alan Taylor loves this stuff, though, and I really think it matters too, right. And I accidentally got some amazing results because I'm neurotic enough to care about these sorts of things when I'm doing research. Okay, here is my problem. I'll make it my own personal neurosis to make it more interesting, okay. Say I'm interested in shame, but I only use one scale. I use the Cook scale for shame. That means that there's a bit of methodological error just because of the kind of items that Cook used, okay? But because I'm so interested in shame, 
I wouldn't rest with that. I used four measures of shame on a bunch of psychopathically inclined individuals. And thank goodness I did, because I got amazingly different results depending on the shame measure. So what the short thing is that when you are assessing a trait, they're not behaviours, they're deep dispositions within you, certain tendencies to respond in particular ways. And so you don't just want to have one way of assessing stuff. You want to get at it from a number of angles. Because, for instance, if I use a, a shame scale, that's a self-report measure, right? So self-report's got its own drawbacks. So if I want to sort of counterbalance the method error that comes in from self-report, I might say, well, I want an observational measure too. So I'm going to use a Q-sort. Okay, and Q-sort, that's a bit problematic because that's still forcing things into distribution. That's still numbers. I'm also going to use a projective test. I'm going to give people a sentence stem, women are lucky because, and get them to complete it. And then I'm going to code that. Can you see? If you triangulate the methods, each method has different error variants to it. It increases the chances that you can really get at the thing that you're interested in, the latent trait or the disposition. In my instance, it was different variants of shame. I could really get at the shame. Okay, I'm not sure that I can actually do this tongue twit for today, but I'll do my best, all right. So, this fellow, Conley, had young adults rate themselves and be rated by their peers at time one in terms of how neurotic, impulsive, and extroverted they were. Twenty years later, they did self-reports again on how neurotic, impulsive, and extroverted they, they were. And what they wanted, what they found was, and this is the tongue twister, I promise there's no short answer or multi-choice question that has this. Okay, what they showed was that the time lagged heteromethod correlations were only slightly lower than the contemporaneous correlations. So what that meant was they were really getting at the underlying tray because the correlations between my the way I was observed when I was young and how I rated myself when I was older was only slightly less correlated than how I rated myself when I was young and how I was rated by another when I was young. So those are the contemporaneous correlations when both things are assessed at the same time. Okay, moving right along, you really look like you're dying. there. I'll just go quickly. Don't worry about that at all, but but what it means is that 60 to 80% of the true score variance on the latent, the underlying trace, stayed the same across 20 years. But it tells you nothing about why they stayed the same. Absolutely nothing. It could be environmental invariance, etc. Okay. So what influences our changes? Well, we might have latent personality traits that you don't see. Um, you've probably all had the experience that somebody seems perfectly nice until you accidentally reject them slightly, and then suddenly they're a different personality. Or if you lost someone's trust, and they never trust you again, you see a latent personality trait that you didn't see before. The other thing that can influence changes is how much ego strength you've got. Um, there's a few scales that measure ego strength. If I'm very high on ego strength, I can take a lot of knocks from life 
before my personality would go into decompensation and crumble. If I, if I haven't got such great sneaker strength, because I've already been through a lot, or I didn't get a good start in life, then it wouldn't take as much for my personality to start to fall apart. Another thing that, thank goodness, can change personality is psychotherapy. You can go into psychotherapy in a kind of stasis, things not real great. Psychotherapy starts to change a few things and then consolidates those changes. You might be brave enough to make a few changes yourself. So that can really influence your change. Another thing that I'm really fascinated by increasingly, again, is hardiness. And that is um, actually not easy to get hold of as a scale. It's become a product. <laughs> and so the terrible thing is when you try to get the hardiness scale, you have to pay enormous amounts of money now, I've discovered, and they want to keep your data and give you the algorithm. I don't want anybody giving me an algorithm. I want to know how to crunch my own data. Thank you very much. But So I'm a bit grumpy about that at the moment. But anyway, Kabasa's work on commitment, challenge, and control, which I used to call the three Cs, is really fabulous. What she found with Salvador Madi, who I think was her PhD supervisor, is that there were these really high-level execs that had heaps of stress and they didn't fall in. And she wanted to explain how are these guys, and it was guys, how are these guys staying so healthy when they've got so much going on and other people are crumbling around them. Okay. Okay, now cultural concerns. We're just about finished, and then I'm just going to very quickly take you through a longitudinal study, which is one of my favorites, and then that does done for the day. Okay, so can you hang on in there? Yes, I know it's been a bit dull that last little bit. Okay. Some cultures can actually protect against certain forms of psychiatric illness, while other cultures actually encourage the development of certain personality disorders. And that's quite a crucial variable. Those of you who are in Giselle Bill's um, seminars will know that the attitude that people take to sexual practices can actually increase the anguish that one experiences for being drawn towards certain sexual practices. So you might end up seeming quite disordered, not because of your preferences for certain sexual practices, but because of the attitudes that everybody else has got to those people who've got that tendency. So that sort of cultural gaze, you know, what the audience thinks of you, is as utterly crucial and changes, thank goodness. Now, back in 87, Milan, I think quite prophetically, predicted that there might be an increase in borderline personality disorders. And there certainly seems to have been an increase. If, this, if the 70s and 80s were the culture of narcissism, I think we're definitely into a phase where borderline personality disorder um, seems to be on the rise, or borderline personality tendency. I don't really hold much with um, BPD as a, as a category. But what Malone says is because there's all this cultural pluralism and we don't know which standards to live up to, um, we can experience our identity as quite diffuse because we feel quite torn between different belief systems and we've got quite different reference groups and we don't know who we should look to to find out whether or not we're okay. And of course, as we know, Patterns of diagnosis change within a culture and across time, like the DSM is constantly being revised, as, as you know. So the summing up is, there's not just stability or change. It depends on the definition of change, 
the research methods you're using, and the level of personality that's being addressed. Now, just let me indulge very quickly because I really love this study. The reason I love it is they did the hard, they did the hard work. They didn't hand wave and say, oh, sorry, yes, we, we should have done longitudinal studies and follow children through the life course, but we're just going to take snapshots of first year students. They actually went out and looked at the life course patterns of explosive children. These are great studies to find online if you're at all interested. Okay, you probably remember from, I think, about the first lecture, I suggested that one of the major cultural achievements that required of us is inhibition. We have to learn how to, to delay our gratification. And I told you about the study where the little kids had to resist the marshmallows to get the block of chocolate later. And it's actually a very ubiquitous, in other words, broad, um, occurring everywhere demand that society places on the developing child. And it requires that we develop ego control. And so they looked at kids that really didn't have this, the kids that responded to frustration and adult authority with quite explosive temper tantrums. And they said, what happens to these kids when they go through the life course? And it is a bit of a challenge to learning theory, because if behavior is maintained by its consequences, you wouldn't think this behavior would persist, because it's going to get really bad contingencies from the environment. And so... It's no surprise that ego-resilient individuals show continuity across the lifespan. But why should these maladaptive behaviours um, persist? Because unfortunately what seems to happen, you think about it, you've got maladaptive behaviours, you tend to expo explode in the face of authority. Unfortunately, you explode in a really violent way, which gets the police attention, which gets you put in prison, and guess what? You're suddenly in a situation where if you didn't like authority before, <laughs> you're really not going to like it now, and they're going to have minute control over every inch of your life. So you're going to experience even greater frustration, which is going to have greater impact on you and lead to greater exposure to authority. So you can see it's, it's, not a, it's a vicious spiral in a sense. So why did this behavior get maintained? Okay, so what they found was that ill-tempered boys, 20 years later, have become ill-tempered men. They are even more under-controlled, irritable, and moody than their even-tempered peers. And what's fascinating to me is that they've gone down the socioeconomic ladder. They've got progressive socioeconomic deterioration just because they explode a bit in the face of authority. Childhood tantrums were as strong a predictor of their occupational status as the social class into which they were born. So, because they often don't stay at school, don't, don't get learning, end up with uh, you know, jobs that don't pay as much. They were less likely to have intact first marriages at age 40. Um, 46 of the explosive men, 46% had divorced compared to 22% of the more even-tempered men, and that was significant. Do ill-tempered girls become ill-tempered women? Well, it didn't seem so from the interviews. The women had managed to put on a good social appearance to seem quite sort of agreeable and benign. But if you didn't just look at how they presented themselves in the interview, you actually looked at the more objective indicators the achievement patterns were no different from the men. They um, had 
married lower than their father's socioeconomic status. This is how they calculated the women's socioeconomic level by who they married. And 40% of married lower than their father's status compared to 24% of their more even-tempered peers. They were slightly more likely to be divorced, but they certainly had more marital conflict and were more dissatisfied with their marriage. When Bloch had a look at their ego resilience, you get the sense of a, a, an upward spiral in life. Ego resilience are people who've got what's called characterological integrity. In other words, integrity means what you say fits with what you do, fits with what you feel. You're the same person you know, to somebody who's superior to you, compared to subordinate to you, and you're resourceful. And they found great continuity between what they were like at high school when they first started high school and what they were like in their mid-40s. They had sustained dependable, productive, ambitious, bright sort of lives, valuing intellectual matters. But I thought this was quite interesting because, you know, life does wear you a bit. They had lost a little bit of their warmth and sympathy by their 40s, probably a few hard knocks, but they still were deficient in warmth and sympathy. But the unsettled under-controllers, I have great compassion for these people. I think they probably would be better in another cultural setup. They're, they're impulsive, they're changeable, they're rebellious, they're talkative, they're hostile, they're unconventional. You sort of think, you know, if they didn't get full sit still at school, they'd probably be okay. They'd find their niche somewhere. But, you know, the society sausage machine means that they sort of, they have to knuckle under and adjust. And by the mid-40s, they were very similar. They were very high on job changes, quite low on socialization and self-control. So in other words, yes, there are changes, but there are also quite deep-level continuity. And the continuity is it can sometimes be a diverging continuity. Things can get worse for some people and can stay quite, uh, quite benign for others. Now, the vulnerable over-controllers, these were the sort of slightly neurotic people, I suppose, who really want to keep the environment under control because they're not, they're not comfortable with things being sort of loose and free. So they go from being aloof, thin-skinned, ruminative, distrustful, submissive, defeatist, introspective, aren't they amazing adjectives, to being bachelors in their mid-40s. Very, very controlled, wanting to keep, you know, to create a good impression, but not very accepting of themselves. So they haven't got a lot of self-compassion. Okay, thank you so much for your attention. That was Lecture 34 from the series Philosophy of Psychoanalysis, presented by Associate Professor Doris McElwain. This is the final lecture in this series. Please check out Three Associating, a new podcast on psychoanalytic supervision to continue your exploration of psychoanalysis. Wishing you all the best and thank you for your support of this podcast. The theme song to the show was created by Rose Mackenzie Peterson. The producer is myself, Nina McElwain. Thanks to Andrew Jeeves and John Sutton. Speak soon. Mm-hmm.